0: Thank you, Dan and choir Mr. and for beautiful worship this morning. Turn to the minor prophet, Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. It was a plot straight from a 1980s Hollywood blockbuster. A true freshman quarterback, Trevor Lawrence sporting long blonde locks, led his team to a victory in the college national championship game. In doing so, his Clemson Tigers failed the higher-rated reigning champs, the Alabama Crimson Tide, coached by one Nick Saban. David took down Goliath, the would-be supervillain, With a penchant for winning, went down and went down hard. He went down led by a team by 19-year-old Johnny Utah. Saban was named by Sports Illustrated as one of the most disliked people in all of sports. Why is it so many people dislike Nick Saban? Jealousy? Tired of seeing him win? Feel like you're watching the New England Patriots all over again? You're a Clemson fan. Were you more overjoyed that Clemson won, or were you more overjoyed that Saban lost? Where were you? Were you overjoyed that Clemson won, if you're a Clemson fan, or were you overjoyed that Saban lost? There's a big difference, you know. What was in your heart? What made the drama so thick was that Clemson is coached by an Alabama native, a University of Alabama alum no less, Dabo Sweeney. For those who relished seeing Saban fall, it was a perfect climax to the film. Hometown boy came back and defeated the carpetbagger from West Virginia. In fact, Sweeney even danced to Sweet Home Alabama after the victory. If history has taught us anything, however, Saban will be back, and he will have his vengeance. If you enjoyed seeing Saban suffer, savor the moment. Celebrate Sweeney and Lawrence's victory. Look forward to more wins from the Tigers. But no, this Saban does not smile when he wins. He does not frown when he loses. But he's plotting. He's plotting already for next year. And he will be back. It's less than a year away. I found a Peanuts cartoon where Linus says to Charlie Brown, Pain looks great on other people. Pain looks great on other people. How about you? Have you ever taken joy in someone else's pain? In someone else's fall? A little pleasure in someone else's pain? In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown." That was the beginning and the end of Jonah's one-sentence sermon. Amen, let's go home, Jonah said. Jonah wasn't creative in his sermon writing. He didn't use relevant stories or catchy illustrations. He didn't even repeat himself for emphasis. He just declared, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the message that God had given him to preach. Quite frankly, he wasn't even very happy about preaching it. Of all things, this preacher, maybe the only preacher ever, was afraid not of Of failure, he was afraid that his sermon just might succeed and the Ninevites would repent and then God wouldn't blast them and destroy them. He was afraid of success. Let me set the scene for you. Jonah is more reluctant than Amos, he's more fearful than Jeremiah. He's less confident than Hosea or Isaiah. And yet Jonah comes to us as probably the most successful of all the preaching prophets. While the other prophets got to stand firmly on God's land amongst God's people, their feet on Israelite soil, proclaiming God's word to God's chosen people, Jonah was sent to a faraway land to preach to strange people in a foreign land. And yet, he's the most successful of the prophets. Jonah lived in the vicinity of Galilee, he was a son of Amittai, and God comes to him in the 8th century during the reign of King Jeroboam II to go to the great Assyrian, the enemy of Israel, the great Assyrian city, the city of the enemy, the city of Nineveh, and God says, go and preach. Well, look at chapter one, verse two. Chapter one of Jonah, verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah arose and went all right, but he didn't go to Nineveh. In fact, he went the wrong direction. He found a ship not going northeast like he should. Rather, he heads in the opposite direction. He finds a boat at Joppa and goes west, not east. And like a a major league pitcher hurling a fastball, the Lord hurled a great wind. Look at verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. The little boat was tossed to and fro, back and forth by the powerful hand of God. The sailors panicked. Every one of you, Whatever God you worship, you pray to your God, we'll pray to our God, and maybe one of these gods will save us. They began to lighten the load. They began to throw the cargo overboard, lightening the load to lift the boat to save the sailors. All the time, Jonah is down in the belly of the boat asleep. Wake up. Wake up, what, what are you doing? How could you sleep? Go call on your God. Perhaps your God is the one that has not been called upon. Perhaps your God will save us. They beg him to call on his God. Well, nothing's working, and so they roll the dice, they draw the straws, double snake eyes on Jonah, so you're the one this made your God angry where'd you come from look at chapter 1 verse 9 and he said to them I am a Hebrew I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land how could you do this to us look at verse 11 So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me in the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Just toss me in the water. It'll solve your problem. And Jonah is honest. He realizes if he stays on the boat, they're all going to die anyway. Better one to die than the many, just toss me in. But they don't want to do it, so they decide they will just row harder. They put more effort into it, and they row, and they row, and they row, and they are trying to make it to the shore, to not have to have the blood of Jonah on their hands. But eventually they pray to God, well, they pray to God that don't hold his life in our hands. we got to do what we got to do, and they throw Jonah into the sea. The Lord sends a great fish to swallow the prophet whole. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me, and the weeds wrapped around my head. There's our prophet with seaweed wrapped around his head, and he prays. He says, God, if you'll give me another chance, I'll preach obediently to the Ninevites. The Lord commanded the fish to give up the contents of his belly, to purge the prophet, to puke up the preacher, to let Jonah go. Now, for some reason, Jonah was inclined to listen the second time. Being swallowed by a big fish will do that, you know. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It sounds almost exactly verbatim, like the other call from God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. This time, having been swallowed by the fish, Jonah gets up and Jonah goes. He walks around the city with his one-sentence sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Jonah didn't mind the preaching part. He was just afraid they might listen to his sermon. He was happy to preach hell, fire, and damnation sermon to Ninevites. They were dwellers of the capital city, of Assyria. They deserved it. They were horrible people. They had nasty, violent habits. They were God's longtime enemy. In fact, the Assyrians upon occasion had humiliated and crushed the Israelites. They had stripped them of their culture and their land. Surely God would never, ever forgive people like that. And it goes without saying, Jonah thinks in his mind God can't love the people who hurt his people. They had attacked God's precious people. So God gives the task to Jonah of preaching prophetically to these horrible heathens in Nineveh. You're going to get destroyed. You're going to get your due. God's going to blast you. But he was afraid. That's why he didn't go the first time. He wasn't afraid of failure. He was afraid of success. He was afraid the people of Nineveh would listen to the sermon, repent from their wicked ways, and God just might forgive them. Now, the way I imagine Jonah preaching the sermon is that he obeyed the letter of the law, but he didn't put a lot of a lot of enthusiasm into his preaching. I imagine just kind of a mundane mumbling. He simply says, "40 days and Nemo going to be overthrown. 40 days and them is going to be overthrown." I mean, you don't really want to get energetic about this. They might listen. His sermon was a breathtaking success. Out came the sackcloth, the garment of remorse, a sign of repentance. And into the fire went the statues of the little fertility gods that the Ninevites had been worshiping. And from the king down to the beast, they all were sorry for their sins. Did Jonah rejoice? No, he was angry, absolutely livid. How dare God forgive? How dare God relent and change his mind How dare God not destroy them? How dare God forgive the unforgivable Assyrians? How could God love a people that Jonah hated? Who is Jonah? He's the patron saint of all of us who've ever enjoyed a secret smile. He's the patron saint of all of us who've ever enjoyed a secret smile. Have you ever smiled like that, like Jonah did? Enjoying the thought of someone else's calamity? Maybe just the corners of your mouth turn up just a little bit in glee because someone else gets their due. It wasn't that the Ninevites didn't deserve to be blown off the planet. They did. But God forgave them because they repented. Have you ever smiled just a hair when things went south for the other guy? The competition. Tom Ketchum, 52-year-old insurance agent back in the day in Wausau, Wisconsin, He played it safe with his stock portfolio, didn't invest in any of the dot-coms that seemed too risky to him, and all of his associates cast their lot with these risky adventures, and they were making all kinds of money. And you remember in the 2000s when the dot-coms fell and Tom Kitchum said, I secretly took a lot of satisfaction when the stock market crashed, For months, I've been listening to all my associates brag about their newfound wealth and how wise they were as investors. Well, the revenge was kind of sweet. Tom Ketchum was like Jonah. Tom Ketchum had a a secret smile, a smile one wouldn't be proud of, a smile one wouldn't talk about or share with others. Just that little secret smirk, that inside smile when things go south for a competitor, maybe even a family member. Jonah was like that. He sat back and smiled, thinking God was going to destroy the Ninevites, and yet secretly afraid that it might go well for them. Tom Ketchum admitted to smiling when his friends and colleagues lost money. Anything like that inside of you? Now, we've seen a lot of them these days. Those big flashing arrows, they're about that big, the head of the arrow about that big, and they say merge because six lanes are going to go to one because we're working on the road. Everybody knows the big arrow means that you merge left because the cones are going to force you in that direction, but you've seen him that better-than-everybody-else buffoon in that lexious luxury vehicle decides he's special. You've seen him. He rides on the shoulder. He passes every other car that's waiting patiently in that long line of traffic. He zips to the front of the line, and he expects you just to let him merge in right there at the tip, because after all, we can't expect him to wait like all the rest of us now, can we? You're angry all the way down to the merge point. When you make it to the merge point, You notice he's been pulled over by the police for disobeying the traffic cones and carelessly driving on the shut-off shoulder. Come on now. Did you grin just a little bit inside? I did, and it's wonderful. (laughs) It's an I told you so mentality. A secret Jonah-like smile at the misfortune of someone else. Secret smiles. Ever had a smirk like that? Someone falls, falters, fails, and instead of frowning, you grin inside. News comes of the person you can't stand, that girl who seems to have everything going for her. Someone whispers in your ear, have you heard Miss Perfect is getting a divorce her husband left her for a younger woman you wouldn't tell anybody but honest with yourself you know there was just a little glee in the worst place of your heart or It's your 25th high school reunion. And the high school prom queen, Miss Perfect herself, the one that everybody adored, the one that didn't have so much as a freckle or a blemish on her face. She shows up at the 25th reunion with 60 extra pounds, and you have a secret smile. Perhaps you even walk up to her, act like you can't remember who she is. Now, I don't believe believe I've met you. I don't remember you from school. Now, what was your name, honey? She was a prom queen, and now she has the dread of the middle age spread, and you smile just a bit. How about your boss, that terrible tyrant? He gets a pink slip, gets 15 minutes to clean out his desk, to go home. They've already changed the locks on his office door, and you smile just a bit. The politician from the other party who's known for his stance on family values is found in an adulterous affair, embarrassed and forced to resign by political pressure. Is it within you to smile over someone else's sin like Jonah did? The secret smile, like Jonah, means that in some way we find joy in hating. We find joy in the misfortune of the enemy. Jonah's smile is awfully scary. It's scary because it's our smile too, isn't it? We usually smile the misfortune of others. We usually smirk when we're carrying with us the baggage of bitterness. He always thought he was better than you were. He excelled in every way. He never acknowledged you for who you are or what you've done. He's a self centered sort. And finally, he has his fall. And you smile. You smile because you're carrying the baggage of bitterness. You smile because you're giving him rent-free space in your head anyway. One day, two monks were walking through the countryside. They were going to the next village in order to help bring in the crops. And as they were walking along, they came to a river, and there was an old woman sitting on the edge of the river, and she was distraught. She was upset because there was no bridge to help her get across the river to go see her family. The first monk was a kindly fella, and he said, well, we'll carry you across if you want us to, ma'am. And she said, thank you, would you, would you? And so they clasped hands and, and made a little seat, and the old woman sat on their arms, and they carried her through the river and set her down on the other side, and she went on her way. They walked on a mile or so. The second monk began to complain. Look at my clothes. They are filthy from carrying that old woman. And my back, my back is starting to get stiff from carrying that old woman. They walk... Four more miles down the road, the second monk griped again. My back is hurting me so badly. It's all because we had to carry that silly old woman across the river. I don't even think I can go any further. He lays on the ground in the pain. And the first monk looked down at his partner in the ground moaning and said, Have you wondered why I'm not moaning or complaining? Your back hurts because you're still carrying the old woman. I set her down five miles back. What are you carrying and letting cause you pain today? That's the way we are. We have bitterness in our heart. We have resentment towards others. We're like that second monk. We can't let it go. We hold the pain of the past. We bear the baggage of bitterness, and we experience the secret smile of Jonah. Well, you know Jonah's story. They repent. The king got up off the throne, put on sackcloth. He said, nobody's going to eat. I'm not going to eat. The beasts can't even have their grain. We're all going to call on God, and we're going to... Repent of our violence and our wicked ways. And look at chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turn from their wicked way? Then God relented concerning the calamity which He declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. They repented. God relented. And, well, there was no destruction. Jonah 4.1, I'll paraphrase, says something like this. That's why I didn't want to preach the first time. I knew you were a God like that. I knew you were loving. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were kind. I knew you'd give them a second chance. That's why I didn't want to go. I knew it'd happen like this. I knew you were that kind of God. But Jonah still had hope, so he went and built himself a little shelter. And he decided he would wait and see. Maybe after all, God would get mad again and blast the Ninevites. So he got kind of a ringside seat there on the hillside. And God sent a a, a plant to grow. And the plant grew and became a great shade for Jonah. And then God sent a worm. And the worm began to munch the plant and killed the plant. God sent the sun and God sent the wind. And Jonah began to whine and complain that he'd lost his shade plant. And Then God said to Jonah. Now, what right do you have to moan about this plant? You didn't plant this seed. You didn't water this seed. I did all the work. You're upset over a dead plant, and you can't let me rejoice over the repentance of 120,000 Ninevites. God received the repentance of the Ninevites. And Jonah sad. We're not careful. We might be disappointed when we get to heaven and see someone we don't like sitting there waiting to greet us. Are you ever glad over the calamity of another? Ever read those headlines in the newspaper and go ha 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 you ever feel like Jonah? It's easy to say of the calamity of others, they had it coming. That's what they deserve. That's their comeuppance. Reminds me of the story back the days before communication. It's all down to a telegraph in those days. A Kansas preacher went on a trip to New England. He was coming back home met one of his per- parishioners at the train station. Well, asked the preacher, how are things back home? Real, real sad, said the man. A cyclone came and wiped out my house while you were gone. Well, I'm not surprised, said the preacher in an unsympathetic way. You remember I have been warning you about your sin and your way of living? Punishment for sin like that is absolutely inevitable. I'm not surprised the cyclone took down your house. Preacher, it took down your house too while you were gone. Oh, the ways of the Lord are past human understanding, the preacher said. God forgive us if we ever take joy an unrighteous joy and the fall of our fellow man. Let us pray. Oh, God, unfortunately there's a little bit of 8th century prophet in all of us. Perhaps all of us have those people we'd just as soon not receive your grace. We want it for ourselves, but maybe we'd have a secret smile at the sin, the fall, the faltering of another. Oh, God, that's when we're most unlike you. For as horrible as the Ninevites were, you sent the word of proclamation that they might repent and you could relent from their destruction. Give us changed hearts, oh God. Amen.